Wherever you find yourself, know that we're glad you're worth worshiping with us today. Before you jump in, I want to I want to give you an update on our reopen plan. Uh, this, this is something that's not going to be easy, uh, nor perfect. Um, but we have we've been having a lot of conversations with other pastors and other churches uh, in our own network uh, and also outside of our network as well as here locally, uh, collectively all together seeking wisdom from medical professionals. And, and trying to just figure this out all together. Uh, we're going to be following CDC guidelines. Uh, we're going to be maintaining social distance uh, in our gatherings. And so with that said, we're, we're looking to begin regathering during phase two of Florida's reopen plan. Uh, our first gathering, we're going to be outside, uh, kind of all together. Hopefully we'll be able to take communion all together. It'll be, it'll be more music heavy. We'll be able to spread out uh, and really just, just be able to worship the Lord uh, outside. And I'm, I'm excited about that. But after that, uh, we're going to move to two services to keep our gatherings intentionally small, under 50 people, to allow plenty of room here, in Learning, here at Learning Gate uh, to spread out. We're going to be very systematic in how we seat people and also how we release people uh, and trying to keep things uh, very clean and sanitary. Uh, we're still working through how we're going to, uh, how we're going to do kids specifically. Um, that's a bit tougher with, with social distancing, but we've got a few ideas that we're kind of working through. Uh, it's certainly not going to be the same, um, at least initially. But whatever we do for kids and whenever we do it, uh, it will be very intentional and systematic uh, for the safety of both our families, our kids, uh, and also our volunteers. And so be on the lookout for new information uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, but with that said, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to jump right into today's text. Uh, we're going to be in Mark 13 which is a bit of a doozy. Uh, it's a tough text. You know, last week on the Great Commandment, I said it was uh, easy to teach but hard to live. Well, God has a sense of humor uh, because this week is not easy to teach. This text has been on the calendar for a few months, and it's uh, been the text that has caused mixed thoughts and emotions. Uh, on one side, I think it's fun text. I always love a good challenge, trying to figure something out. Uh, and it's dealing with, with end times prophecy, uh, which, is, which is innately interesting, but it's also widely debated. But on the other side, you know, I have a few vivid memories of spending hours upon hours in seminary uh, tasked with writing this 20-page paper uh, defending my own uh, view of the end times uh, against two other alternate views. I, lo I loved writing that paper. I learned a lot, uh, but I walked away less confident and more confused than when I started. And while I was writing that paper, I'll never forget walking through the aisles of the library and seeing book after book and commentary after commentary and PhD dissertation after PhD dissertation uh, with various perspectives and thoughts on the intricacies of today's teaching, which in academic circles is called the Olivet Discourse. Our passage today, uh, it's a widely debated passage, a passage that people have spent thousands of years trying to figure out. And today we've got about 40 minutes to try to figure this thing out. Uh, as a teacher and preacher of God's word, you know, I work really hard uh, to, to, to get it right, to be faithful to the text, but inevitably we have trusted Bible scholars and teachers that disagree on this text. You know, I've read three different commentaries, listened to three different sermons, uh, read all sorts of articles, uh, and watched some very fascinating YouTube videos, uh, and none of them agreed. Uh, there will probably be a number of you listening or watching that you, you may disagree with how I teach this passage. Uh, you've, you've heard it taught a different way in the past, probably, maybe, uh, and that's fine. I, I'm not here to debate. 
Uh, I'm here to feed us God's word. This is one of those passages that we can, we can disagree on the interpretation and still worship together side by side as in the same church. In times, theology is not primary nor even secondary. Uh, this, as a, it's, it's a tertiary, it's a third level issue of importance where it's okay to disagree. So if you disagree with how, with how I teach this text, that's, that's completely fine. But inevitably, uh, some may hear how I teach this and just think, well, that sounds good, Pastor. Uh, sounds good to me. I'm encouraged. Others of you uh, may say, well, uh, whatever. Let's just go to the beach. You know, that's just kind of uh, where you may be. We're kind of all over the board. But just so you know, my purpose today is not to pre- present my uh, interpretation because I think every view, uh, every view on the interpretation of this passage, it falls short in some way, in- including mine. Uh, and to be frank with you, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've changed some uh, as of this week. And so welcome to the landmine of Mark 13, where almost every step you take is a step of danger. Uh, However, although uh, this is a difficult passage and often uh, debated, I believe it is of great importance, and I think it can be very practical. Uh, As Pastor Alistair Begg often says, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, he says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so uh, this this passage is innately going to seem confusing, but what is very clear in this passage is is what is very plain. We can hold on to these things that are plain and we can run towards these things with confidence. And so I'm going to adopt the, preach, the phrasing of my preaching professor and say, I don't see myself on the planning committee uh, for Jesus' return. Rather, I'm on the welcoming committee. My overall view of the end times uh, is Jesus will return and Jesus wins. Uh, everything else, I guess we'll just find out when he comes back. Uh, but there are, some still, there are still things in the Bible that are good for us to wrestle with. Uh, we don't just push it off to the side, specifically uh, to have a framework of knowing uh, what is clearly not right, uh, which our culture today has, uh, there's a lot of that. And so instead of seeing this passage as a blueprint or a roadmap of Jesus' return, I hope it will encourage us towards faithfulness today. I hope it will encourage us to be alert, uh, to be spurred on, which leads us to our main idea. Be faithful and alert, trusting that Jesus will return. I give that to you as something to kind of hang your hats on uh, because that's what we're running towards on the back end of our time. Uh, but first, we need to wrap our head around this text of this teaching that Jesus gives uh, of two different future events. Both were in the future during the time of this teaching. But for us today, one has already happened. I, I really wrestle with this, you know, being that guy that stands up here with uh, charts and maps and outlines talking about the end times. Uh, but I'm going to be that guy today because I think it's actually really helpful uh, because the next 15 minutes or so is going to be pretty technical. Uh, so try, I want you to try to keep up and follow me. So I would encourage you to write, maybe write this timeline down. We're going to have a timeline up here just so you have a framework of events as we walk through this. Our passage today, it, it reads as the first event where, where Jesus uh, teaches in Mark 13. And that's the very first thing. Jesus is teaching in Mark 13. And while he's teaching in Mark 13, there are two future events in his teaching uh, that he is warning them of. And both of these events uh, we're certain of and we can be confident in. The first event happened in 70 AD, which was the destruction of the temple. Uh, So us here today in the church age, we look back at that. We look back, we look back at that, and we know for certain that the first event, it has already happened in history. 
And then uh, we have the last event, the second uh, event, when, when Jesus returns, which, which obviously is still in the future for us today. He has not returned yet for a second time. But that, uh, that we can still be certain of. Because it said clearly and repeatedly over and over again in Scripture. Uh, so we can be confident that as we go through this passage, that Jesus returns and Jesus wins. An, an illustration that I think will be helpful uh, to think about as we kind of get into this, uh, as you look at the timeline of events, go back to the timeline of events if we can, um, is, is just thinking of this idea uh, of someone standing on a mountain range talking about one mountain, that, that first event there, uh, while there are others right behind it that are also being talked about in the same conversation. What Jesus is doing throughout this entire chapter would be like looking out at that mountain range uh, speaking about that first mount- mountain in today's passage, the, the first event, this is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, it was a future event then for Jesus. It was in the future for them when they, were, when they were being taught this for the very first time, but it's history for us now. And then right behind it sits another mountain, which is the end of the age when Jesus returns, which as we know is a future event uh, for us today. And in in many ways, he's giving simultaneous instruction on how to navigate both mountains, both events. Some of it is for for the first mountain range. Some of it is for the second. And I personally think uh, some is also for both, right? It's for both. And and I think this may be helpful as, as, uh, I I think this uh, may also be helpful for us thinking about this today. But uh, when you look out at a mountain range, you know, they, they look close together uh, but there's a lot of space between the mountains. In our case, we sit here today, we're in between the mountain ranges, but some of the instruction is still the same. Some was specific to the first mountain range, uh, but some is still important for us today. But the trouble in this text, what is often debated, is which part of this passage refers to which event. Uh, which mountain range is Jesus is talking about uh, when he's talking and there are a few streams of thought on this. You know, some, some, trust, some trusted scholars that, that I follow, that I love to listen to, uh, that, that I believe are great teachers will say, all of chapter 13 was fulfilled at the fall of the temple in AD 70. And it has nothing to do with Jesus' return. Others will say all of chapter 13 refers to the return of Jesus, and it has nothing to do with the fall of, temple, fall of the temple. And some will say, you know, there's a mixture of both all throughout, some, somewhat of a double meaning uh, for many of these verses, which I personally think is true in some cases. Uh, when, but then others are more structured in their approach, saying specific verses are for the temple and specific verses uh, are for the return of Jesus, which is the most commonly and uh, po- most popular perspective of this passage. Which is, what we're gonna, which is how I'm going to primarily teach through our passage, because I do think it's helpful. And then there are all sorts of combinations uh, in between, which is probably somewhere where I stand. Uh, I'm going to put the most frequently taught structure, the most popular interpretation up here on the screen so you can write it down. Let's go ahead and put it up there. This is just a simple roadmap for how we will walk through our text. But as we know, just because it's the most popular doesn't make it right. Uh, But I think it can be helpful for us. So here it is. Instruction for the fall of the temple. Verses 1 to 23. And then we have uh, the return of Jesus. And then uh, third, going back to the instruction for the fall of of the temple in verses 28 to 31, and we're going to go back to the return of Jesus, which is in verses 32 to 37. So that's kind of a rough outline 
and, and here we kind of see the back and forth nature of which mountain Jesus is talking about, switching back and forth between these two events. Uh, but what was kind of funny about this is as I tried to start teaching, started thinking about this and teaching it this way, then it just seemed too simplistic. Uh, and I started to disagree with some of the structure, but I do think it will be helpful as a simple God to start from. And then uh, I'll, I'll, th- I'll, sh- I'll show you why I think it's a little bit too simplistic as we go. But, but you know what? As I've said, my hope today is not to explain this as a blueprint or a roadmap for the return of Jesus. Rather, my hope is to draw out what is more important, uh, which is uh, where Jesus' intentions on why he actually taught this text, uh, which is a call to present-day faithfulness. It's a call to alertness. And the purpose of this is to produce faithfulness on whichever mountain we're working towards. And so uh, we're going to go through this entire chapter, uh, a few verses at a time. And so let's look at Mark, Mark 13, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Which leads us to our first section. Number one, instruction for the fall of the temple, verses 1 to 23. And so here we have Jesus. He's, he's walking out, uh, out of the temple where we have seen him teaching and interacting. He's been interacting here over the past few chapters, interacting in the, cha- uh, in the temple specifically over the past few chapters of Mark. And as they're walking out, someone says, look at those stones. Uh, what wonderful stones. What a wonderful temple that is. And we know from previous weeks, we know that this is a massive temple. Uh, this was a very important religious building for, the, uh, building for the Jews. This was considered the dwelling place of God. And then Jesus said, uh, you see those stones, you see that building, uh, it will be destroyed. It will be no more. It will be gone. Right? Talk about a, a zinger of a statement. You know, this would be someone, uh, something similar to someone coming up uh, saying Washington, D.C., Right? Uh, the, it will be completely demolished. The White House, the Capitol building, all the monuments, the Pentagon, it will be demolished, all gone. And so it's no, this is no small statement. Right? The, the temple was massively important. And then we see in verse 3 and 4, he goes up to the Mount of Olives besides the temple, uh, which is how we get the name, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and his disciples ask him in verse 4, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? He says these things just as a, as a generic statement. And so we need to ask, what are these things? And as we read through these first several verses, these things seem to be referencing uh, to the temple. And the, Jesus responds in Mark's account beginning in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray, and you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And then Jesus continues to kind of walk through uh, various things, uh, which are often referred to in, in reference to the destruction of the temple, saying things like nation will rise against nation, there will be earthquake and famine, uh, there will be persecution, the gospel must advance to all nations, families will turn on each other. But all that being says, it says, uh, then it says, endure to the end and you will be saved. And, and when we look out into the world, we still see these things happening today. 
But I do think it's helpful to see them primarily uh, fulfilled as signs for the destruction of the temple and not signs of Jesus' return. I mean, this is, this is what we see in the book of Acts, right? We, we see these things happening, which, which happens before the fall of the temple. But what typically happens when people read these verses and then also tend to look at the news and hear of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and think, uh, maybe the end is coming. Well, maybe, maybe not. In most streams of thought on the end times, there's, they're not considered signs of Jesus' return. These, have, uh, these things have been happening in every generation over and over again. It says, uh, this will happen, but more importantly, it says in verse 7, but don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. These are considered birth pains, but they're not signs of the end. These have been happening since the beginning of time in every generation. And so, and so it says, don't be alarmed. And then skip down uh, and look what it says down in verse 14. It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is where it starts to get a bit tricky. So try to follow me here. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this simple and try to stay out, out of some of the weeds. The, the abomination of desolation, that phrasing, it comes specifically out of the book of Daniel. Uh, it's referenced three times in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, and then also in, tw- in verses 12, 11, uh, in, in, in the book of Daniel. And just to pick apart this phrase so we can kind of understand it, an abomination, generally speaking in the Bible, is reference to a great sin, a sin that's punishable by death. And it's often in the form of idolatry uh, that breaks God's covenant. And a desolation, by definition, is a state of complete emptiness or destruction. And so an abomination of desolation, to rephrase it, we could say that it would be a great sin or a form of idolatry that causes a state of complete emptiness or destruction. If you're, inter- if you're interested in all of this, uh, you can go look up on your own and see how, the, how it connects to Daniel and the Maccabean revolt in 167 BC and kind of it gets really deep as we kind of look into that. Uh, but on the most basic level, to keep it simple, the abomination of, of desolation is connected to great suffering and tribulation. And so when Jesus is speaking here about the abomination of desolation, he's using it in reference to the future destruction of the temple. But he's using their understanding of of the book of Daniel and past events to help them understand what to look for. And then if you look back at verse 14, he said, Let those who are in Judea, which is a city, flee to the mountains. Just get out of the city when you see this sign. The sign when you see great sin, this great idolatry when you see it that deserves death, uh, that will happen in the future. Get out. And as in Luke 21 verse uh, verse 20 says more specifically, it says when you see see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Luke gives a little bit more details here and his history tells us when this abomination of desolation happened in 70 AD, when Christians saw Roman armies coming into the city, they fled to the mountains. They left because of this warning, which helps make so much more sense of the next several verses. Continuing with the warning in verse 15, Jesus says, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. 
I want to come out and say what we just read has been viewed and interpreted very differently. Uh, If you're familiar with end times uh, streams of thought, this passage is often referenced uh, to details of the rapture, where Christians will be raised up with Christ up into the clouds in the ends, which comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. I may be wrong, but for numerous reasons, I would say that this specific passage is time and geographic specific as instruction specifically for the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It has nothing to do with people being left behind in some sort of form of chaos. And I think it becomes clear as you look at the specific details of these events, that this is specific instruction for Christians during the fall of the temple. Now these, these next few verses I think get a little tricky. Look, look at verses 19, starting in verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In our initial outline, uh, this, this part is still grouped under the fall uh, of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, but I've really kind of wrestled with this a lot this week. Uh, because in verse 19 it says, I want to read it again, it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and it never will be. I'm not going to get into the weeds of all this, uh, but this is where someone's interpretation of the great tribulation that we see in the book of Revelation comes into play. Uh, Some will say uh, we could read this as a warning, as hyperbole for the horrible nature of the destruction of the temple. Because we know that there was famine and cannibalism and mass murder. It was a horrible event. And then others will say, Uh, No, this is a picture of insight and warning of the great tribulation that is to come in the future. And I'm not going to get into all this today, but what is clear throughout the Bible and most views of tribulation is that followers of Christ who believe in Jesus have a great reason to hope and not fear. Christians have no reason at all to fear the end. In fact, we see uh, we have a great reason uh, to long for the end. We have a great reason to, see, to long to want to see it to come to pass. It will be a glorious day for followers of Christ, however and whenever Jesus returns. But I want to keep moving here. I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but we see in verses 21 and 23, Jesus continues his teaching in, in regards to false prophets and deceivers. He says specifically to Christians in verse 23, he says, Be on guard. Be on guard because people want to lead you astray. Which closes, and all of this saying, this closes out our first section on the instruction for the temple. And then I think what seems a little bit more obvious now, at least for me, uh, is a switch from the tribulation of the destruction of the temple to the coming of the Son of Man uh, to Jesus' second coming, which is number two, the return of Jesus. And as we'll see in our passage, it says, and in those days, and, and that tribulation, you know, the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem was a, was a mini tribulation, so to speak. Uh, but a bigger one is coming when the world dissolves, Jesus returns, and when God's people are gathered together. And this is what it says, uh, starting in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. When we first read this, there uh, there may be a few different reactions to this. 
possibly fear or possibly intrigue. In verse 24 and 25, it seems, it seems like gloom and doom. It says uh, in verses 24 and 25, it says, In those days the sun will be darkened, right? the moon will give its light, stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken, and the Son of Man will come in, Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Some have, some have likened this event uh, or close in relation to the great tribulation seen in Revelation 7. But for those who are not Christians, who have not trusted in Jesus, I think this will be a terrifying event. While at the same time, if we are a believer in Christ, the elect, we have an unbelievable, unbelievable reason to rejoice when we hear this. You know, I, I don't know if this is figurative or literal uh, if stars will literally fall from the sky, if the sun and moon will be darkened, it, it, my, my thought is, I guess, I guess we'll find out when Jesus returns. But when on, on that day, uh, whether it's figurative or literal, what will be a picture of gloom and doom to the unbeliever with stars falling, sun and moon going dark, sun of man coming in clouds, that picture of doom to the believer will be a picture of God's glory to the believer. This should bring, bring both comfort to the believer the Son of Man will send out angels, as it says in verse 20, 27, to gather his people from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. This is a reminder for us of the great joy we have to labor to the ends of the earth. That it will not be done in vain. Our, 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 our partners in South Asia that we support and we pray for are increasing the harvest the angels will gather and bring into every corner of heaven. Whenever, whenever people come to Christ from all over the world, we are increasing right, the harvest that the angels will gather and bring into every corner of heaven. What a great joy we have to send people and to labor here in Tampa for the sake of seeing an increase to God's glory in heaven. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is returning. And Jesus is returning in glory. The first time he came in silently in a manger and the second time he'll come in riding on clouds. It won't be a silent, unnoticeable event. It will be known, this event will be known all over the world. As Pastor Tony Morita has said, the first time he came dying in the place of sinners, the second time he'll come in glory judging unrepentant sinners. This should both comfort us as Christians and spur us on towards mission for the sake of those who will be judged. I don't, I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus but I pray that today you may wake up and consider that day, the day in the future. I must ask for you, will Jesus' return, will it be a day of gloom or will it, be, will it be a day of glory? If you're not following Jesus, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, I pray that you would consider that day. Will it be gloom or will it be glory? As we continue with our time, I pray that you would listen carefully. And then, after Jesus you know, br briefly looks towards his return, he switches back to the temple. And number three, we're back to instructions for the fall of the temple. Jesus just looked at the second mountain range and is now glancing back briefly at the first and again, I'm holding this loosely because many of these ideas can be applied for both. Uh, this is what Jesus says to his disciples starting in verse 28. 
from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. At first, when we read these things in verse 29, I think it's natural to think of the sun and moon going dark and stars falling from heaven uh, because that's what we just read. But then look what Jesus says next in verse 30. He says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He says in verse 30, he says, This generation, generation, which almost every time in the book of Mark, which is 27 times, uh, this generation refers to the current generation. So this makes sense in light of the temple destruction, but not with the sun and moon darkening and stars falling from heaven and the return of Jesus, because that hasn't happened yet. And then Jesus comes and gives a word of encouragement, something for both them and us to kind of hold on to. Jesus says in verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my, my words will not pass away. What's beautiful about all of Jesus' immediate uh, instruction for the impending destruction of the temple to his followers is also an example for us today that Jesus' words could be trusted. The temple was destroyed just like he said it would happen. And because of his instructions, many Christians were able to flee and be able to continue the spread of Christianity. And then for us today, we can believe yet again by looking at history that Jesus' words can be trusted. We saw that the temple was destroyed and we can also trust that Jesus will return. The details of how are debated, but what we know is that he will return. That he is faithful and true, that he cares for his people, that he didn't abandon us at the cross and he won't abandon us here on earth. He gave a great reason, he gave us a great reason to trust his words. With that being said, as we switch back to Jesus speaking of his return, you know, back to number four, the return of Jesus, as he glances back to that second mountain, you know, I want to point out here that Jesus finally addresses their question that they asked at the very beginning of when will these things be? When is this going to happen? Uh, which, is, which is an excellent question. Uh, this, is, this still today is being asked uh, by people all over the world about the return of Jesus. I know Jehovah's Witnesses have had uh, numerous failed predictions of the end of the world. Uh, and also back in 1988, there was a man that wrote a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen uh, in 1988. It's fascinating stuff. It really is. Uh, but it's wrong and it's not helpful. Uh, why? Because this is what Jesus says starting in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. As it says concerning that day or that hour, referencing the return of Jesus, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Anybody that tries to make predictions based off of the news, reading them into the book of Revelations or anything else for that matter, it's just not helpful. The disciples asked Jesus and he said, nobody knows. Not even him. Jesus didn't even know. So anybody that says they know, well, that's a pretty bold statement. And I guess we could say that's definitely a false teaching. However, although we don't know when, and the details of how everything will play out aren't exactly plain and clear and are debated, but the instructions are still clear. To which Jesus says in verse 33, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. 
He says, be on guard, keep awake. That's not like go to sleep. Uh, it's the idea of alert, alertness. Most translations uh, say, stay alert, uh, keep alert. Out of, all, out of all these things he taught, he gave specific instructions for the temple and also instructions for us now. And the overlap for both was be alert, be expectant. And then Jesus says, starting in verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with them his work, and commands the door, doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The illustration that Jesus gives here about his return is don't let the master come back and find you asleep. Be alert. Stay awake. Can you, can you just imagine uh, the disciples after they heard this? Uh, their sense of fear and wonder and anticipation, wondering what's going to happen? When is he going to return? And then as we know, that, that what followed this teaching in chapters 15 and 16? It was Jesus going to the cross. This was one of, one of his last teachings before his death. And then Jesus goes to the cross, he dies a criminal's death, he took upon the sin of the world, he took your sin and my sin upon his shoulders, and then it says, uh, which is very interesting in relation to our passage, uh, when Jesus died, utter darkness covers the whole land. And when Jesus died, it, the earth shook, and rocks split, and the curtain tore in two. And on that day, that day that looked like the final judgment day, it was a precursor. It wasn't the final judgment day, but it was the day where Jesus was judged in our place. So that those who receive Jesus, who trust in him, will no longer have to look to the final day as a day of gloom. But those who trust in Jesus can look at that final day as a day of glory. Jesus was judged in our place on the cross so the day of doom could be turned into a day of glory. As Tim Keller has hinted at, Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. Jesus came to take it. This is the gospel. Jesus was judged in our place. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Savior, perfectly righteous and holy, came to this earth so that our day of doom could be a day of glory. He came to this earth to take our sin upon his shoulders and take the penalty we deserved. We deserve to be judged for our sin, but our sin makes us guilty. If you have not trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would. Our passage today says, be awake, be alert. Don't find yourself asleep when Jesus returns. The most important thing we can have is to be alert and ready for Jesus, is to trust in Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to worship Jesus. Don't find yourself asleep and dead in your sins, not ready for the day of Jesus' return. I pray that you would find yourself alive in God, alert and ready for that day. Faith in Jesus is the difference between a day of gloom and a day of glory. But then, for those that are Christians... For those of us that have a hope for the day of glory, something for us to just consider is that we must be alert. But, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be alert? I think it means walking with Jesus, seeking to grow in faith, love, and hope, growing in obedience and mission and generosity. And I think 
all of this plays into this passage by being expectant of Jesus' return. I said this earlier. I just, uh, I just imagine the anticipation of his followers when they hear his teaching. I, I'd like to think uh, they lived most of their days just expecting that he would return that day. Uh, most of the New Testament writers believed that the end was close. They, they lived with the expectation that Jesus could return any day. What, what we read in 1 Peter chapter 4 in our, in our passage in our groups this week, he said in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he said, The end of all things is at hand. The New Testament writers were spurred on, thinking that Jesus was returning any day. It affected them. It affected the way they lived. Just a simple question for you to consider. Would you, what would you do differently if you knew Jesus was going to return today? How would your life be different? And as we close, you know, I want to give three quick specific things of how being alert to the future return of Jesus can affect our lives now. First, living with the end in mind, living, having the idea of living, expecting the return of Jesus drives us to a life of holiness. This is, this is what I mean by that. Ask yourself this question. In life situations, maybe in life situations that we find ourselves in sin or that lead us to sin, in those situations, would you do what you're doing if Jesus were to come back right now? Would you be doing that if he came back right now? Also, in the area of holiness, it spurs us on towards forgiveness, wanting to be quick to forgive others. It spurs us on to enduring injustice or enduring wrong from others because living with the end in mind reminds us there may not be justice now. We may be wronged now, but Jesus, in the end, he will right every wrong when he returns. There's a sense of endurance and persecution and suffering and tribulation that comes in believing that Jesus will come quickly. And then second, secondly, living with the end in mind drives us towards mission. If you believed Jesus was coming back today, who would be the first person you would pick up the phone and call? Pleading with them to trust in Jesus. Whoever that person is or group of people, maybe you should call them today. How, how would you orient your life, different, that life differently? Like, where would you go? Who would you share the gospel with? You know, living with that imminent end in mind, it spurs us on towards urgency, which is what we see in the book of Acts in most of the New Testament books. And then third and finally, how would you use what, we, what I call, or what we call the, the three T's, your time, your talent, and your treasure? We can say it this way, living with the end in mind drives us to consider how we use our time, talent, and treasure. If you knew Jesus was coming back maybe next month, if you knew the exact date, how would your time be used differently? What talents would you use differently for God's kingdom? And then your treasures, your possessions, the resources God has given you, how would you use them differently if you knew Jesus was coming back in a month? How would you give, who would, who, would you give it away generously for the advancement of the gospel? Who would you have over for dinner? Right, who would you help? Where would you go? Ask the question, how would your resources be used differently? Would, would, you, would, would it be used on yourself or would it be used for others in God's kingdom? These are all questions for us to consider and how our lives uh, will be different or could be different. You know, I bring that up because out of all the instructions and signs that Jesus taught, what is plain and clear for us today 
is to be alert. Is to be alert. You know, I, I hope and pray that you would be alert. That, that, we, would, that we would live with the end in mind. And to that we say, as the book of Revelation says in the last two verses of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 20 and 21, where Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. To which we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And to that we say, Amen. Jesus is supreme now. He will also be supreme when he returns. May we wait expectantly for his return. To which we pray, come soon, Jesus. Come soon. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that we would live every day with the end in mind. Father, we pray that we would be a church that does not uh, think of ourselves or the little things of today, but we would think, hoping and praying for Jesus to come soon and living in accordance with that, that we would be alert, that we would be awake. And Father, I pray that if there is anybody listening under the sound of my voice that has not trusted in Christ, that wants to, to trust in Christ, I pray that you would uh, be with them, that they would reach out to us uh, here at our church, that they would email someone, find our staff page, email someone, uh, that we could pray with them and we could walk life with them. Father, we pray that you would come soon. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.